Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655.
Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the four persons on this very solemn night in our church, very solemn and sacred night, the night around which our entire faith revolves. Good Friday. This is the day that Jesus paid for your sins and mine at Calvary, and it is... um, awe-inspiring and breathtaking to even think about it. And it's also kind of funny that we uh, we didn't really choose it, but it just kind of worked out this way, that Holy Week is the week in which our blog and our podcast is really doing much, much of its ramping up and getting up to speed and, and really coming into its own. So I have two of my uh, co-hosts with me tonight. I'm going to bring them both on, and, and we're just going to talk to you about our feelings about this day and uh, what it means to us to be a Catholic Christian on Good Friday. So why don't I start by bringing on Fred first. Fred, how are you doing this evening? Uh, there he is. How you doing, Fred? <laughs> Good. How are you? Well, we'll do okay if we can get the technology figured out. <laughs> yep. What was that music you were playing? Uh, that's a song by David Meese. It's called The Man with the Nail Scars. And uh, I think it's very, very, very appropriate uh, piece of music, don't you think? Yeah, it was very nice. I'd never heard of that before, but yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it came out, uh, well, I want to say during the 1980s, maybe late 80s, oh, okay. early 90s. Yeah, Back Christian, when there was good music. Yeah, Christian contemporary uh, uh, songs. So first first of all, um, talk about what, uh, what this night means as part of the Triduum, as part of going into the, the, the transition into Easter. Uh, and then talk about your 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 personal feelings of uh, of how you reflect on on uh, Good Friday. Well, of course, uh, Jesus by dying on the cross redeems the world. But if you could imagine being one of his disciples at the time, um, the depression must have been horrible. You know, uh, the discouragement, the despair, the loneliness. Because here, you were probably still thinking. Jesus is going to become king, right? He's going to lead a big revolution. And guess what? You're in the inner circle. So you're going to have all this prestige. You probably have a lot of money. Um, You're going to be um, famous and have a lot of power. But suddenly the guy you thought was uh, the answer to all of Israel's problems and all of your own problems is just dead, you know? And I, I think that they must have been very, very low. But yeah, I, I mean, think, it, um, it started, uh, this week starts on, on uh, Palm Sunday, and there was all the, the a- a- optimism of that, and, and they're, you know, crying out, Hosanna is the king of David, and, mm-hmm. and they're seeing him has, uh, as coming in triumph, and and he did, but that triumph didn't look anything like they thought it was going to. It, 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 it looked a lot more like 
a defeat and the despair of first Good Friday must have been must have been overwhelming because they couldn't understand um, what was about to take place. And with that, let me bring Lewis on. Lewis, uh, welcome tonight, and, and give me your thoughts on Good Friday. Good Friday is something that's both fully biblical and taught in church history. It's something that all Catholics and all people that are aspiring to be Catholics, which should be everyone, <laughs> should know about. Um, primarily, yes, because it's the day that Christ died for our sins. But, um, yes, yeah, primarily because it's the day that Christ died for our sins and um, how he changed the structure of the church. I was just debating, a, um, not to make this about me, a, a seven-day Adventist. And um, it seems that, um, not personal to them, but it seems like, you know, like them, like many Protestants, or in a way all Protestants, they don't really understand the meaning of, of Easter mm-hmm. and how it's a day given to us by our Lord. Um, mm-hmm. They'll say and turn around that and, and say the, the Catholic Church made it up, but if you look at church history from the first century and onward, it was always there. And by them denying this day, they deny themselves so much knowledge from Christ, and that's a very sad thing. Yeah, Seventh-day Adventists have a very, very uh, uh, bizarre take on the, on the crucifixion bread. They, they believe that uh, Jesus, the human, died on the cross, but the divine right. Jesus did not. Um, if that's the case, uh, we're in a lot of trouble, aren't we? <laughs> That's a very old heresy, and I uh, don't remember all the names of the the various heresies, but I am sure that that was covered and discussed and decided back in about the second century. Am I – do you know anything about that, Lewis? The second century, I mean, my phone um, – can you please repeat that last part? Well, um, saying that the human part of Jesus died and the divine part did not, Sounds to me like a very old uh, heresy, um, but I'm not real good at remembering the various heresies and all that church history. But there's way sure too many. Um, there's way too many, and since Protestantism, um, it's a spectrum. There's Every Protestant has their own unique kind of heresies they all believe, and that's mm-hmm. also what leads them to have conflict with each other, ironically. And we see yeah. that ever since the start of Protestantism, all the internal conflicts, all the Protestant and Protestant mm-hmm. wars. So, so you're not getting angry at yourself, but you don't know every single one because there are many. <laughs> right. I would say it goes back well, that's to why the Arian the heresy that was resolved in the Council of Nicaea. It seems like people are ignorant of church history, not to be not calling names or something, but if you don't study church history, you're going to reinvent the same old heresies over and over again. Right. So for those of you that are just tuning in right now, the, the Nicaean uh, Council, the Council of Nicaea, that was a council where Arius the heretic got punched in the face by Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can look it up uh, up yourself. But hey, here's the deal: the Christian faith is um, is the the tenets and the beliefs of the Christian faith are possible to to understand, but impossible to penetrate. 
So we can understand the concepts, we can uh, explain them conceptually, but it's impossible to contem contemplate and comprehend uh, how Jesus could be fully human and fully divine uh, at the same time. The, the same Jesus who fed 5,000 people with uh, you know a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread is the same Jesus that cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me, yet mm -hmm. not my will, but your will be done. So the, the same Jesus who turned water into wine, the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, cried out from the cross, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these things are so hard to comprehend because in one minute we're seeing the emphasis on the human Jesus and in another instance we're seeing an emphasis on the divine Jesus and yet both were present the entire time and they, and they had to be because uh, you know one of the lines that the, that the Protestants throw out of Lewis they, they always throw that line at us from, from Timothy from uh, Paul's letter to Timothy it says there's one mediator between God and man. And, and my response to that is, well, yeah, because there was only one qualified applicant <laughs> for the position. Yes, but like that, that, that poor logic that, you know, that they used that, um, they, um, that, 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 that they used um, to try to discredit us asking the saints to pray for us and with us. That's a very poor argument for three reasons. One, if you actually understand what we're doing, we're asking the saints to pray with us and for us to Jesus, just like we would ask someone on earth. And the Bible and church history make it clear together that we are allowed to do that. Again, if you go and look at the book of Revelations, specifically Revelation 5, 8, it shows um, the saints taking the prayers of the people on earth and presenting them to Christ. And the books of Tobit add even more depth, which is ironically what, uh, which is ironically why one of the reasons it prompted Protestants to take it out because it taught something that they are directly against. Mm -hmm. uh, and two, well, actually, no, that's enough. It, if you look at church history, it becomes even more obvious. Intercessional prayer is, is founded since the first century. You see all early Christians quoting it. This idea that we die after, um, after you know, this idea that our soul sleeps after our death, is a mm -hmm. completely man-made heresy that, you know, or that, for example, that we are cut off from the rest of the body of Christ on earth when we enter heaven. That is another big heresy that Protestants follow. Right. The way I would argue it, Fred, this, when people throw this argument out, the way that I argue it, tell me what you think of this, this analogy. The difference to me between a mediator and an intercessor is like the difference between a judge and a lawyer. One has the uh, one has the ability to ask. Uh, the the lawyer can petition the judge. The lawyer can make his case before the judge. But only the judge has the authority to act. And when you when you're talking about uh, a mediator between God and man, the only qualified applicant would have to be God and man, because. No human being is in a position to be able to mediate with God because they're not on equal footing uh, in, in, in any uh, 
way, stretch, manner, or, or form. So the only one who can mediate between God and man, in other words, have uh, uh, authority to to set a binding agreement, which is what a mediator does. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, in, in 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 cases of divorce and things like that, we, we they they call it legal mediation, or two two companies or two parties that that are in, in a legal dispute, they'll agree to binding mediation. Well, you know, the the judge sets down the terms and says, okay, party A is going to do this and party B is going to do this, and and it's mandatory. Uh, that's different than an intercessor. And very often the saints may may pray on our behalf, and 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 Jesus may very well deny their petition. He may say, uh, you know, the person prayed sincerely, but I have something better in mind, or it is not the right time, or that's not in, in accordance with my with with my will. So for them to make the argument that we're putting. Mary or any saint on the same level of Jesus is making the argument that the lawyer is equal to the judge. Is that you think that's a fair uh, a fair analogy that I'm using here? It's a very clear analogy, and it's the same thing with the jury. The jury can make requests too, but the judge is the one that makes the final decision. And again, that that's a very that very same argument. What they don't understand, it can be used for asking other people to, on earth to pray for them and with them. So let me that's, ask you that's what you want to understand. If you can understand the logic that, you know, Scripture tells us to pray for one another, and right. then it shows you by by example that um, that also includes the saints of heaven, they can pray for us too to Christ, then it becomes clear. Um, mm-hmm. they, they think that, for example, praying to the saints, that takes away attention from Christ when it's actually the opposite. It doesn't take away the attention from Christ. It adds attention to Christ because instead of, like, for example, you alone praying, it's actually a whole body that's praying. Right. So let me ask Fred. Fred, specifically in the in the in the counseling profession, uh-huh. how would you draw how would you draw parallels here uh, when you when you're trying to uh, like for instance, if a family counseling situation where family is going through disagreements and strife or, or or what have you, how would you draw parallels here between between mediation and and you know, interceding or or negotiating or asking. Well, I'm often called upon to uh, to testify or to write letters in family situations, and I can ask, but it's the it's the the person in the family court, the judge, who decides. So, I suppose that that, that um, yeah, that might be another analogy. Although, honestly, I think the lawyer one is better than the, uh, the therapist one. <laughs> but anyway. So, Lewis, I would say also. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish your point. I didn't realize you weren't finished. Oh, I'm just thinking about um, talking about the whole body craze. Uh, you know, one of the things about... Uh, that uh, we say in Thomas psychology is that you really do think with your whole body. You know, you don't think with your brain and it's not your brain that thinks it's all of you that thinks using all of your body. 
you know, your, your nervous system is centered in the brain. The brain is very important, but your nervous system runs throughout your body and your endocrine system runs throughout your body. And you need both of those really to think as a human. But I think the analogy is really good. And I think probably as we learn more about the body and more about our own psychology, we can have a, a deeper understanding of what we find in scripture and tradition. It's kind of interesting when you look at the at the name of our of our program or what we base it on. We see that more and more and more. You see that more and more in your profession, and you see it more and more in life. That really, there's more to to a, a person being being healthy than just uh, chemical reactions in the brain, and 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 you know that's it. There's a lot more to it, isn't there? The what you just said about the mind and the body, the integration with the mind and the body, but also the heart and the soul are also part of what makes a person. Uh, and I mean, for instance, and if I can add something to that, I mean, like I studied psychology in college. Um, I know about that. We're not like robots. If we take away the soul from the equation, we become almost like machines or emotions. Like you just said something very powerful, like chemicals in the brain. There's a lot of people, for example, in the field that think that by giving people medication and a good advice for their life, that's going to be enough to change it, even if that advice doesn't include, you know, it isn't a Christ-centered advice. It doesn't ever take them anywhere because um, – there's there's multiple components to our existence, and you just kind of named it all. Our soul, and we humans just have a we have a hole in our in our in our hearts so that only Christ can fill. And um, mm-hmm. when you try to replace that hole with something else, we never fill it, and in turn we just kind of keep asking or seeking more, and we are never satisfied. That's certainly true. Um, it's interesting that. I've done a, a review in England recently about depression, and we always used to say, oh, there's two kinds of depression. There's endogenous depression and there's exogenous depression. You know, there's depression that comes from a biochemical imbalance in your brain, and then there's depression that comes from your circumstances or you're thinking about your circumstances. Well, it turns out that is not even true. The, um, there is no endogenous depression. Um, all of depression comes from stress or in other words it comes from what we're thinking it comes from a man's heart you know so we're right back where we started from when when david was writing psalms right as a man thinketh so is he um which is kind of scary because um when you think about all the things you've been through can you right but it's also very hopeful because if you learn to al- align with what your nature is, you know, all of us are not aware. I mean, none of us really are aware of what our deepest designed um, desires are. But if you pay attention and, and follow along, then you can learn that, you know, and you have a chance to be happy. Yeah. I, I think that um, what you're saying uh, or, or at least what, what I'm taking out of what you're saying is that um, a, a large portion of the uh, portion of the psychiatric profession has moved from giving people the tools to move forward 
giving them uh, excuses to, to to remain where they are. Uh, the kind of the victim mentality. You're a, you're a victim um, of of things that are not your fault. It's it's an illness. It's a chemical imbalance. It's a it's a, it's a condition. Um, it's a disorder. They, all these things that they throw out. Um, that's a nice crutch, but I, I think what people are really starving for, or at least most people that I know, is they want to move forward. Now, how do you help those people organize their their thinking and organizing their their thought patterns in order to move forward? That's what that's what classical counseling and therapy used to be, right? Uh, how did we how did we veer away from that, Fred? Well, honestly, if you think about modern psychology or modern therapy, it really started in the late 1800s, and it's always had problems. I don't know how much you uh, studied all this, Lewis, but, uh, you know, well, if you go uh, back to... I've actually observed the reasoning, and um, the part of the reasoning is, well, it is from the beginning. Psychology has always been secular. It's always, you know, kind of taking God out of the equation. One of the points is just, you know, finding neutral ways of, of helping people, you know, but there are problems with that. Um, the second thing is that Satan has gotten his tail in psychology, for example. Um, in psychology, we're... Um, a lot of the problems that therapists should be trying to help, they're encouraging, for example, with the whole mm-hmm. LGBT transitioning thing. Um, exactly. The overdiagnosing of, you know, um, children with gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. All this stuff, you know, even a few years ago, uh, being, you know, controversial topic, you know, being attracted to the opposite sex was considered a, a, a mental, you know, a mental a mental disease, and now it's being considered completely normal. So um, psychology, it, it can change, and it has changed, and then not for the better. So um, uh, we, we've really gone wrong when we we mix we have mixed psychology with politics, and the result mm-hmm. is that we are we are encouraging where we sh- in places where we should be helping them. Yeah, Go ahead. Right. you were starting to make a point, Fred. I want I want to hear your point. You talk to me, John. Yeah, you were starting to make a point. I want to. I want to hear what Sorry, you were yeah. going to say. I, I was finding it hard to hold myself back. I wanted to jump in. Um, uh, psychology as a profession is not tethered to reality. That's the problem. And back in 1973, when they took out the the diagnosis out of the DSM, which is the standard diagnostic manual for all of us. It took the diagnosis of homosexuality out of there, and it wasn't because it had not become something disordered in, in people's minds, but because it wasn't politically correct. So it is ideology, and it's not about truth. It's about power. No, you're you're absolutely 100% correct. And, and once you lose that, once you lose that moral moral mooring, if you will, um, I, I mean, people will fall for just about anything. And that now we're seeing that. Now, now um, you know, we're seeing the insanity of, of, of the idea that uh, if, if I don't want to be a man, uh, I just pretend that I'm a, uh, I can pretend I'm a donut. <laughs> it's, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we're at right now. And then not, not only can I pretend that I'm a donut, but then I can force you to acknowledge me as a donut. And if you don't acknowledge me as a donut, well, then you're a bigot or, or whatever label that I want to throw at you. I mean, it's gotten it, it's gotten that insane. And the other thing where we've really got gone off the rails is the counseling profession puts forward this idea that you deserve to be happy, that happiness is a right. Well, that's a very, very dangerous thing to try to put forward because when you put forward the idea that you have a right to happiness uh, and then you don't gain that happiness, well, then now you're a victim. And you're a victim and somebody has to be held responsible for your uh, denial of my right to, to happiness. And when you take a person that's a little bit unbalanced to begin with, uh, and you feed that in. Um, you know, I've read in, in several places that 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 you know, several experts have said we're basically creating a generation of uh, of narcissists and sociopaths. Um, is, is you think that's a fair statement? And this is especially true for um, the role that modern day feminism is playing. With, for example, our women. We are teaching, for example, this generation of women that um, it's okay to be selfish and only think about yourself, and there will be no repercussions later on for this. A very strong Catholic um, speaker, which I very much admire, Matt Walsh and um, David Knowles, and pretty much every um, right-kneeling and Christian person on YouTube says the same thing. It harms women at the end. Because by the time, for example, let's say they're ready to settle down and have children, they're biologically unable to. They have, for example, they spend all their incomes having fun so they have no savings. They're overly in debt. You know, it teaches women to be narcissists. And um, and then after they sell, they blame men anyway. It's a very self-destructive lifestyle that we're keeping this generation. And again, it's both, but it's being aimed more at women through modern-day feminism. And that's also destroying marriages. And, you know, the whole reason that marriage exists, besides, you know, procreation, is to sanctify the people. It's to make... Uh, I'm sorry about that. It's to sanctify the people. It's to, it's to get people to think less about themselves and more about, you know, let's say their spouses or children. Right. So, you know, we're taking that, um, you know, these forces that are pretty much satanic are taking that away from people. Right. And, and Fred, kind of the result of it that is, that is you know, moral and spiritual, the result of that is that uh, people, uh, you, you've got a disappearance of repentance because people are not responsible for, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've got people in my own family, unfortunately, that, that, uh, fall into this. That they're not responsible for anything. Every, everything is is caused by somebody else or some other circumstance, or they have bad luck, or they have this disorder or this misfortune. Um, it, it's kind of just giving everybody a blank check to to uh, do whatever makes them happy, and no consequences for their actions. Um, the results have been. Uh, disasters, wouldn't you say, Fred? 
Yeah, uh, and one of the themes that you see running throughout all the many different theories of psychology and psychotherapy is just that, the, the flight from responsibility. Uh, there's various different ways that people do it, but that's kind of a common theme. And if I could bring it back to our original topic, the exact opposite of all of that, of course, is Jesus, because Jesus is the the um, the paragon of the perfect uh, human psychology. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't run from uh, responsibility at all, but instead, he takes all of our responsibility on his shoulders. Very, very interesting that you said that because that was just what I was about to say. Is how do we, how do we take this back to what we originally started the show? So we, me and you, were tracking on the same level, but let's take it. Let's take it a step further, Fred. Um, mm-hmm. Not only was Jesus the perfect example, but as Jesus was about to show us this example, he said to us, and this is five times in the Gospels. So the point of emphasis, he said to us that if we want to be his disciples, we will have to take up our crosses. So this this whole idea, I think one of the ways that we've gone off the rails is in the, the, the Protestant notion that uh, Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. It is finished, uh, the perfect work of, uh, of of Christ, and I don't have to add anything to it. That's not what the gospel says. Uh, Fred, I want to hear your your take on it, and then I'll go to Lewis and, and, and get his take on it. Well, I think that's exactly right. And one of the sad things uh, about being a Protestant is that there's not a whole lot that you can do about suffering. Um, God has his purposes, you know. It basically devolves down to pie in the sky. You know, hang in there, and sooner or later, you know, when you die, God will make it okay. But um, when I became a Catholic, my view of suffering was transformed. You know, it changed my life because I no longer looked at suffering as something to be avoided at all costs or uh, it's inevitable then to be kind of um, ignored or turned away from. But but rather, suddenly, things that Jesus are saying is saying in the, in the Gospels make a whole lot of sense to me, right? Suddenly, it's in 3D that um, you you don't avoid suffering, you take suffering on gladly, you know, and it's not something that's easy or automatic, I know, we all have to learn to do that, but it's something that uh, there's an economy of grace, right, you know, we're all helping each other, you know, if I screw up in sin, I'm hurting the whole church, but if I can gladly embrace suffering, then I'm helping the whole church, that's beautiful, you know, I can do something even for people who are really angry and against the faith, you know, I can't talk to them because they just get mad. Okay, but in the short term, I can take up some suffering with Jesus, and I can use that to help them um, come closer to that point where they might actually open their hearts to God. And, and Lewis, the beauty of what Fred just said there is that we can actually take a, a, a person who we're – uh, having estrangement issues with or strife with, and, and I'm facing that in my life, uh, we can even use the suffering that they are causing us for their benefit. Uh, so um, uh, comment on that, if you would, Lewis. 
using their suffering for our benefit or using our suffering for their benefit? Well, I'm talking about um, the suffering that they cause us by by their estrangement, by their anger and, and, and what have you. We can you. use that as a benefit to, to try to imitate Christ, as we just discussed. He was the perfect example of... of um, not necessarily growing from pain. He's divine. He's perfect. He can't grow anymore. But showing us how good thing, because it can be used to teach others how to be, you know, followers of God. Mm-hmm. Christ came down to give us that example and to show us that, you know, being a servant of God isn't going to be easy. If he, the son of God, did not have an easy life, if he, the son of God, who was God, didn't have an easy life that us, his creation, shouldn't expect one either. So when Protestants say, no, Christ paid it all, he paid all my suffering, he paid all my mistakes, and it's only once, and I don't have to worry about sinning because everything is forgiven, they're kind of defeating the purpose of Christ's sacrifice. And many Protestants fall into this. They, they think, for example, a doctrine that came into my mind that kind of fits into our discussion is... The satanic and fake doctrine of once saved, always saved, that once you accept Christ, no matter what you do, as long as you know, not even as long, no matter what you do, you cannot lose salvation, and if you did, you were never saved to start with. But if you are saved, you can't lose salvation. That is a very misleading doctrine that's going to send the souls of millions, if not billions, to hell. It's what we call easy believism, and mm-hmm. that is not what Christ came to do. Right. It's a it's 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 a it's a blasphemous teaching, is what it is. And and the way the way that I equate it is that uh, in every passage that refers to Jesus as Savior, it refers to Him as Lord and Savior. So the way that I look at this is they want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Jesus as Lord. They 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 want Jesus mercy but they don't want his justice. Well, Jesus' mercy has to be reconciled with his justice. And he cannot extend his mercy to a sinner who doesn't repent. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's almost like, and some of them are, are, are quite uh, arrogant and flippant about it. In fact, I, I heard a person one time years ago told me that Jesus has to let him in heaven. He just doesn't have any choice in the matter. I mean, he really said it that that flippantly and that arrogantly, and um, that's terrible. That's, that's, that's if almost... you want to hear arrogant Protestants, try to argue with a Calvinist. I went to college with a Calvinist, and he put it this way: How can you lose something you didn't earn? The salvation is not earned, and that is a stupid that's a stupid ideology because even things that we didn't earn can be taken away from us if we are irresponsible. Right. So I could yeah. I could find a hundred dollar bill on the road and lose it the same day. <laughs> I mean that so that argument doesn't make any sense. That's totally. uh, that, like the Christmas story that you could easily lose your BB gun, right? You didn't earn that. It was given to you, but you can lose it if you <laughs> shoot and uh, get hit in the glasses. <laughs> it's That's like a, freedom. <laughs> um, we are all born free. We're not. No one is born in prison. No one, you know, no one, you know, legally anyway, but no one is born in prison. 
But let's say I do something reckless, reckless, I kill a person, I can lose my freedom. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not an ideology that holds up, but it's also um, Calvinism, even though I brought it up, is a perfect example where um, these, these fake ideas of saved by faith alone, which contradict both scripture and church history, it shows you where um, these uh, fake ideas like saved by faith alone and that, you know, uh, lead you. They lead you to extremes. Like, you know, they, um, they lead you to either thinking that you can't lose salvation. They lead you to thinking that you don't have to repent. They lead you to thinking that you must, you, you don't have to do good works since they don't play a role in our salvation. They lead you to thinking, you know, things like this, that um, that God supposedly pre-elects uh, a handful of people and then the rest, he doesn't give a choice if they want to, uh, if they want to follow him. He just denies them that choice, which is what Calvinism teaches. So, I mean, like, um, and again, I know I've said this before, but just by the fruits of Protestantism, how Protestants are in disagreement on almost everything that they teach amongst each other. They are, dis- mm-hmm. they are in disagreements about the Trinity, the Sabbath, um, if salvation can be lost, how salvation is obtained, works, pretty much anything that you can think of, except maybe three or four doctrines, they are in disagreement on. that. They show you by by their fruits that... um. Their ideology doesn't lead anywhere. I, I would really, you know? I would really argue that the only doctrine that they're that they're pretty much unanimous on is sola scriptura, and and the only reason that they're unanimous on sola scriptura is because it's it's the foundation of of uh, saying that their entire uh, self service religion is built on. You you have to undo the foundation of the church in order to make the remake the church in your own image. Uh, so, so sola scriptura is not something that they really believe, but it's it's a necessary foundation. So they have to claim to believe it, uh, and and yet, you know, they don't have the answers for. Okay, so you believe in the canon of scripture, but outside the church, how can you tell me what the canon of scripture is? Outside of the can outside of the church, how can you tell me who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Because nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does it say it was written by Matthew. So, you know, these are the, the, the kind of quandaries that they find themselves in. But it all boils down to the fact that they have this disordered view of what Jesus did for us. Jesus, this this substitute, fully substitutional sacrifice of Christ, you, you're absolutely right. They've missed the boat. What Jesus did was to add value to suffering, as Fred was saying. and In fact, probably the deepest thing that I ever read about this, I don't know uh, if you've ever read Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. It's, um, uh, if you haven't, it, it, it's a book that I think everybody should read. It's just really deep and powerful book. Uh, but one of the things that he talks about, he goes in detail about when Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one of those things that's really hard to get your mind around. How could Jesus, who is God, cry out to God that he's been abandoned, abandoned by God? It, it doesn't seem possible. Uh, and in some mysterious way, Jesus veiled his divinity from himself in some mysterious way in order to totally immerse himself at that moment into his humanity 
And the reason why he did that was so that he could experience the suffering that a human being experiences when they feel like they've been abandoned by God. And the reason why Jesus wanted to experience that agony was to sanctify it and make it holy. So St. John of the Cross says because Jesus went into that depth of despair in order to make it holy for us, that at that very moment that a Christian feels abandoned by God, that is the very moment when they're closest to him. And that was just overpowering for me to read that. That, that Jesus not only went the extra mile, but the extra hundred miles in order to fully immerse himself in every kind of suffering that we had, even the, the experience, that utter loneliness and desolation. And I'll tell you, I've experienced it. Full, full, uh, full honesty here, I've had those moments in my life when I've experienced that feeling of being abandoned, that God, where are you? Why are you not listening to me? Why are you not helping me? Where are you? Um, and, and at that moment, when a Christian is moving forward in that suffering, that's when they're the closest uh, to God. And I, I'll go to you first, Fred, and then to Lewis, because I want you both to answer this. I was surprised uh, several years back to find out just how many saints went through that, went through that feeling of that, that desolation of that abandonment by God. Uh, you first, Fred. Well, I think that is really important because uh, so many people nowadays try to hide uh, their own despair from themselves and from others. And so many times I get uh, kids especially, but even mature adults who spend all of their free time playing video games and there's nothing wrong I think you know in in general with a with a video game it's fine but to spend all of your time doing it strikes me as being a um, a really powerful way to hide yourself away from the truth you know um, Viktor Frankl famous uh, psychologist who went through Auschwitz talks about Sunday afternoon neurosis he actually was married. It's not widely known. He was married to a Catholic woman. He attended mass with her all his, all the rest of his life after the war ended. I don't know the state of his soul, but it was it's interesting to think about that. But anyway, he talks about Sunday neurosis, where you don't have a schedule, you don't have anywhere to go or anything to do, and suddenly you're really depressed. Why is that? It's because at last you are in in silence and you realize. Mm-hmm that you actually have choices and you have to find your way to God. You know, you might not even acknowledge the existence of God, but it's God or the abyss, you know? And uh, I think for a lot of people, that's the closest they come to that moment where, where really, really, really have to say, have to acknowledge that feeling of abandonment and turn in a radical way to God. And on top of that, I was just waiting for him. We kind of just went on. Um, we just returned back to how they tried to avoid, uh, I guess, not the justice of God, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Hello? Yeah, we're, we're listening. I can hear you guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, as they try to avoid the, the justice and wrath of God, um, and I mean, it seems that most Protestants paint God to be like this, this um, docile and, I guess, permissive parent, and that is just not true. And again, it's it's kind of make it's hard to make general statements with Protestants actually because they all believe in so many conflicting things. But yeah. specifically the ones that believe in an easy salvation, like one saved, always saved, they they paint God to be like this this um, biased person that kind of like um, either presupposes who's going to be saved without taking in free will. Or they believe that God is just a passive, a passive God that you know allows His children to do whatever they they want, and um, that is not true. And I mean, I've had some Protestants, for example, say things: "Well, God will chastise us, but He'll never let us leave Him if once we're saved." And I mean, that's a little better. That's a little closer to the truth, but still a lie altogether. Because I mean, no, God still gives us the freedom, even after chastising us to walk away from him. And, uh, you know, it's it's very, the reason they cling to this is because it gives them, um, I guess, a, a sense of security. So they can, you know, so they can do whatever they want. And the worst thing they can fear is a punishment on earth, not eternal punishment. But it's still a false sense of security that God never promised us. That if, you know, if we sin and we go live a life of sin, He'll punish us, and you know he'll set us straight without result. You know, without taking into account our free will, and that's not true. He will punish us, but it's still our choice if we want to, you know, grow from that punishment and turn away from sin. They don't look right. at that. So, um, and it kind of shows you again. That's what we were talking about. Even within the same doctrines, there's disagreements on on everything. There's Protestants that believe in once they've always saved, they'll say that they don't face punishments because they've already been excused from them. And there are, there are some that, that don't believe that, that, you know, we're saved, but they'll get punishment. They just, they don't have to fear going to hell for what their sins. And both are, are not true. Um, you mentioned before how Sola Scriptura is the only doctrine they have left they agree upon, and even they are starting to see that. I saw this Protestant on YouTube that did a comparison of all the different denominations, and he even mentioned that himself, that slowly as the years progress, new Protestant denominations being warned, um, more and more of the similarities came disappearing. And even from the start, um, again, I know I mentioned this before with the Protestant and Protestant wars, but if you look at the life of Luther, he was an unstable person. He was an alcoholic. Um, he would do things that were would be considered clinically insane, like get up mm-hmm. on the floor and wrestle with, you know, the devil and, you know, take his feces and throw it on the wall and say he was throwing it at Satan. He would say things like he proclaimed himself to be, to know more about scripture than the angels themselves. He, he would do very narcissistic things. He was very anti-Semitic and persecuted um, other Protestants like the Anabaptists. Um well, not if only that, but some of his writings were very, very blasphemous. I mean, he accused uh, Jesus of committing adultery three times. His writings Say that were again, blasphemous. Please. In one of Luther's writings, he actually said that Jesus committed adultery three times. His writings were blasphemous. 
that, that was very, I mean, that, that's saying that Jesus committed a sin. And, I mean, it doesn't surprise me he would say things like that. Because, I mean, he, for example, said it himself. He would not write, he, he would refuse to write unless he was angry and he would get angry by drinking. Um, it's a mystery how he died, but it comes down to two ways. Either A, um, historians think that he took his own life, or B, he died from his, you know, alcohol addiction. But he did not live a peace, he did not die in a peaceful way. And again, um, he made a lot of enemies, and it was average, it was very normal for Protestants to have other Protestants as as enemies. Uh, One of his original followers, um, Swink, or something like that, you know who I'm talking about, it starts with a Z. Mm-hmm. Swingley, or I believe, yeah, Swingley. Yeah. He ended up becoming Luther's uh, one of Luther's greatest enemies, and um, Calvin. The only person that Luther didn't lose as his friend, I believe, was Calvin, and I'm not sure if they even met. Pretty much um, all of his original followers, for the most part, most of them ended up starting religions of their own. And again, I know I'm not trying to go back in circles, but if if that is the result from the start, that, you know, there is conflict within the movement, just imagine as time progresses and look where we are now, 45,000 different man-made Protestant denominations, each of them claiming to have scripture 100% right or more right than the other with no point of reference other than them saying they're guided by the Holy Spirit. That's just nonsensical right so why don't we go ahead and wrap this up let me get your closing thoughts um uh fred first you get get your give me your closing thoughts on um your thoughts on good friday and where you see this apostolate that we're forming uh going forward within the next few days through easter weekend and and beyond Well, one of the things about Good Friday is time. You know, you could say, why didn't God achieve uh, all he achieved through the crucifixion and death of Jesus and the resurrection? Why didn't he just do it in a flash of light? But for some reason, uh, it is not really known to us or not fully known. He chooses to do things over time. You know, the children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years, right? God was preparing things really, really patiently. And so I think that one of the main things or one of the important things that we can learn from Good Friday is um, patience. You know, we don't know God's timing, but we can know that God is always at work and he's bringing his plan to fruition. And so I think as we go forward on uh, this apostolate, that that's uh, an important thing that we can remember too, you know, um, that we don't understand why other things didn't seem to work or why we have to go through frustrations or when something is going to happen, but we know that God is at work. And I think uh, it seems, it seems to me that God has brought people and circumstances together in a really wonderful way. I think we can see the hand of providence in this, but also it's all God's work, right? We will, we can do as much as we can do, but then the result is in the hand of God. But it's a wonderful place to be, right? It's wonderful to yeah. be able to be totally dependent on God. So thank you to John. Thank you, Lewis. But, uh, that's, that's all I had to say on that topic. 
I think that Good Friday, um, since, you know, I just came from church myself. Um, I I went there from 2 to 5. It gives you the experience of witnessing firsthand, like in my church, we have a live play where we walk with the resurrection and um, the crucifixion and resurrection. You get the chance to firsthand to try to give up, to kind of get a taste of what happened in those times. And to um, try to, you know, pretend like we're living through it so we could further understand. it. Um, it's definitely something biblical and historical that enriches our faith in Jesus Christ and draws us closer to him. Um, it's something that all Christians should do. And it's funny, it's very sad that there are Christians out there that would reject it based on miseducation. Hello? Okay. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm acknowledging what you said. So uh, for my close, I'm going to say for anyone who happens to be listening now or listening in the future, um, please uh, give this apostolate uh, your prayers. And uh, at some point, we, we've applied for 501c3 status, so at some point we're going to be able to raise uh, contributions and and we hope you'll prayerfully consider uh, contributing to the growth of this uh, to this apostolate so I want to end now with all the people who's uh, in, in need of prayers I'm going to pray for this apostolate and for all your intentions in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Hail Mary full of grace Lord Praise the Lord is with me Blessed, Blessed are, are you among women Blessed and blessed is the fruit of God Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us. Amen. God bless, and we'll be back tomorrow morning. We have a great show tomorrow, a double header show. Uh William Hemsworth is going to be in the first half, and Terry Delp and the debut of the Taken to the Streets program is going to be the second half. That all kicks off at 10 a.m. tomorrow. God bless you, everyone listening, for Lewis, for Fred. Have a wonderful, wonderful Easter, and God bless. You too.